1: or afternoon, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Each week, the Event Horizon welcomes artists, writers, musicians, and other creative types that help weave the fabric of this marvelous continuum we call science fiction. And this evening, our guest is Madeline Holly-Rosing. I'm... I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yes, you are. And uh, your project is um, uh, the Boston Metaphysical Society.
2: Yes, it is.
0: And I've never metaphysics. I didn't like. Oh. But I'm, um...
1: <laughs> <laughs> so in this case, what you have is a steampunk graphic novel. And uh, Susan has already read the. I believe it's the first issue of it. First two. First two of. It. Okay. So tell us about the project and uh, and and what you're doing with it now and uh, and we'll go from there
2: okay uh, Boston Metaphysical Society is a six issue miniseries and it's about an ex Pinkerton detective and his spirit photographer partner who battles supernatural forces in late 1800s Boston uh, What we're doing is we start as a web comic and we have gone to print the first, Two and a half chapters are up online right now. Uh, mm-hmm. We're about—I'll be launching page number seven this evening online. Uh, but we only have the first two chapters in print right now, and the—the the ones that you have, they are well. The PDFs I sent you, the print editions are twenty-four pages long and have two extra pages of concept art, which differentiates them from what you can read online. You, you can't mm-hmm. get any of the extras online. Mm-hmm. Uh, the project originated when I was still at film school at UCLA. I'm a UCLA
1: uh, film school alumni.
2: Alumni. Ah, there you go. And while I was in the graduate program, I was uh, taking a TV development course. And I originally developed uh, BMS, as I call it for short as a one hour long supernatural period procedural. Mm -hmm. And, uh, excuse me, a friend of mine in the class, uh, I was sitting in the Melnitz lounge, and you know that tiny little lounge outside the production office, Mm -hmm. uh, working, and and he kind of hopped over the couch and plopped down next to me and uttered the word steampunk. And I went like, okay. (laughs) And this means, what? And I had heard heard of steampunk, but didn't know a lot about it. And he said, I think Boston Metaphysical should be steampunk. I think it should be a steampunk story. So I said, okay. I did uh, a lot of research. I read a lot of stories. You know, Sherry Priest, um, K.W. Jeter. I mean, the list goes on. And decided that he was right. So I redeveloped the TV pilot as uh, a steampunk with, you know, a steampunk angle. And then some people I I very much respect had told me that, you know, we think this would make a really good comic or or graphic novel. And I agreed. So I went and learned how to do that. Uh, Coming from a film background really, really helped because it tends to make you visualize the panels and explain things better to the artist. And, uh, and then developed it adap- Actually I adapted the whole the, the TV pilot into the six issue miniseries Which is what I'm working on now
1: Wow So um, So when you started the project You had no real conception That it was really a steampunk project
2: No, no uh, It was something very new to me mm-hmm. And as I learned more and more About steampunk uh, The more I loved it and and soon found out that well discovered that it was it was like the genre waiting for me you know waiting to be discovered and i love i love writing steampunk i I just think it's so much fun to be able to bring in uh science fiction elements period elements i'm a huge history buff and i'm a huge science fiction buff Mm -hmm. and so this just kind of brought all of that together so it's been a lot of fun
1: it's apparently also been very popular. Your Kickstarter campaign is going very, very well.
0: Yeah, I contributed it to it today. Oh, thank you. And uh, <laughs> and it was recom- the the Kickstarter was recommended to me by John White, writer of the uh, Airship Neverland series. Oh, Was yeah. all about it today, in in uh, I in am so there we are, and now I've done my little shout out to my friend. Ha ha
2: ha. <laughs> oh well, John. John's terrific. Yeah, he's terrific.
1: Oh, you know him?
2: Uh, only through uh Facebook. Facebook, yeah, yeah, through Facebook. I've met a lot of the steampunk crowd and befriended a number of steampunk people through Facebook, who then I later on I've had the pleasure of meeting at various of the uh, various conventions.
1: So where did uh, where did the idea for the Boston met- Metaphysical Society come from? How what was its genesis?
2: Uh, there's a couple things. There. One is X Files, obviously. Uh, the tagline for Boston Metaphysical is Before Mulder and Scully, there was Hunter and O'Sullivan. Uh-huh.
0: Uh, yes. <laughs> I think there was before Venkman and, and, uh,
2: you know, <laughs> yes. and Stance, uh, too. Absolutely. Uh, but yes, I was a huge X Files fan. But yet, when I was at UCLA, I had written a script called Stargazer. And it was a a biographical uh, script about a young woman, a Scottish young woman, who arrived in this country penniless, pregnant, and abandoned by her husband in around 1860, mm-hmm. and had gotten a job as a maid in the director, uh, the house of the director of the Harvard Institute of the o- Observatory, excuse me, and he soon discovered her attention to detail and hired her to become what they call a computer. Uh, basically, she was crunching numbers and looking at black and white glass plates to discover what images were stars and which were not. These are all, uh, you know, astronomical. Oh, doing the, and, doing
1: the blink comparisons. Uh, yeah. back and forth between two plates, looking for spots
2: that move.
0: Mm-hmm. That, yeah.
2: That's correct. They have that's computers
0: correct. for that now, but...
2: Yeah, but then it was just... People and it, he only hired women, and that's a very interesting story unto itself. But in the course of her career, she established a new stellar classification system and discovered over 10,000 stars. Uh, that script actually won the Sloan Fellowship. If, if you know anything about that, um, I'm unfamiliar. Wow! Oh, oh the, Sloan, the Sloan Fellowship is uh, it's from Alfred, Alfred Sloan. And that is a fellowship for film schools and a a few film festivals that focus on science and technology. Science and
1: technology scripts.
2: Yes, science and technology scripts. So that's a niche.
1: There's a niche.
2: Yes. Nice.
1: It's a nice niche to be in.
2: Well, it helped pay pay for film school, so it was a very good niche to be in. Uh That's marvelous. Yeah, that, that really helped out a lot. So it was like the confluence of. That doing the research on that period in Boston and X Files, and I love genre, and it just all kind of came together. I know it's weird,
0: (laughs) (laughs) no weirder than anyone else's journey.
2: (laughs) So,
1: at uh, then after you got the uh, you got the storyline together and you had the whole thing plotted out, and you went uh, you decided to go from from uh, motion picture script into a, a, a graphic novel format, which is essentially a storyboard with word balloons. Right. <laughs> so it it must have been an easier transition for you to do that than than uh, uh, other people would have had uh, in your in your same position. Uh, how did you How did you fall into uh, the sphere of people that it would require to make a comic book?
2: um that that's kind of interesting i took a sequential art class with a gentleman by the name of nunzio de felipe who wrote uh avalon chronicles and uh it's oh um new academy new academy uh, mutant x uh i'm sorry I'm losing my train of thought uh anyway he and his wife christina ware had had published quite a few graphic novels he's mm-hmm. a wonderful instructor and he very much encouraged me to make this happen. So um, you're
1: an artist and an illustrator as well as being a writer.
2: No, no. That was just the first part of my journey, uh, was finding an artist.
1: Ah, and I see. Yeah.
2: My artist is Emily Hugh. So what's,
1: what's, what's the sequen- what was the sequential art class about, if I may ask?
2: Uh, uh, the sequential art basically told me, the uh, n- taught me the nuts and bolts of what you know, paneling was, uh, action, reaction, um, uh, you know, all the basics that go with comic books. Um, you have to understand. I was never a big comic book person, even though I grew up with comic books. My brother is a huge like superheroes fan. In fact, I think mm-hmm. he has the largest graded collection of daredevil comics in the country oh my! <laughs> that's gosh. an interesting specialty yeah uh, i don't know why but that's that's what he did but the superheroes never interested me and it wasn't until i took this class and he gave me the syllabus that i was introduced to all these wonderful indie comics and i was going like why did no one tell me about this <laughs> why 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 didn't anybody tell me? I mean, these amazing stories between, you know, Why the Last Man, Astro mm-hmm. City, you know, Sandman, I mean, The Watchmen, I mean, the list goes on and on. And was like,
1: wow. Well, it's, it's, it's staggering to realize that the independent comics uh, publishing industry is roughly equal in size to the Marvel and DC uh, Dominion. They're, they're, they're How do you
0: mean in, that or, 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 in output or in the not making as
1: much money? Well, the <laughs> the, 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 to, the total amount of money that they're making uh, just never mind the movies. Let's set aside the movies for now. But the total amount of money that the independent uh, publishers are making collectively is about the same as what Marvel and DC are making. Well, now I did, they, they I don't, they don't have they don't have the they don't have the licensing. Uh, and they don't have the the uh, the iconic seventy five year old uh, characters that are known around the world, uh, but uh, uh, but in fifty years, in, yeah, they will just in direct sheer sales, it's about equal.
2: Yeah, and I also think I mean, I, from what I've seen, you're going to see a lot more women in indie comics. I think just because of the nature oh, God, of Mar- I hope so. Marvel and DC. And D-
1: DC's got what? One woman writer. Yeah, DC's
0: got a big problem with that at the moment.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: What's her name? Gail Simone. Gail Simone. Yeah. yeah. She won. won. And, and they and they they canned her. Yeah. From they, writing they, from writing Batwoman. And they like
2: fired her for one week and then rehired her. Yeah, I because like, of
1: the public outcry, because they realized yeah. they'd put their foot in it big time.
2: I, I I guess DC had had a changing of the guard and we're. St- cleaning house so to speak is that usually happens mm-hmm. and um,
1: yeah it's called rearranging the furniture in in management parlance
2: yeah and then well, they they realize they've made a huge mistake in her yeah, what they what they
1: what the new management anytime you have a, man, a change in management like that the new manager comes in and rearranges the furniture and uh, when he's queried on why his department isn't performing as well as As uh, uh, as it's expected, he just says, "Well, we had to reorganize the department, and it's going to be two years before we uh, we really settle in and hit stride." And within those two years or three, he's gone, and the next manager comes in.
2: Yeah, well, at least
1: how it works.
2: Yeah, well, at least they made the right decision and they brought her back.
1: Yeah, here, here,
2: absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, they they clearly made a good decision there.
1: So, so you've fallen in. Uh, As following the story thread, you've fallen in with the comic, uh, the comic book people. Yes, and your your illustrator is again. Her name is Emily Hugh. Emily Emily Hugh.
2: Hugh. Yes, I fall fell into the comic book crowd, which, which has been so wonderful. You're all so nice. (laughs) 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 I I have to say that I've dealt with. I have like four mentors in the comic book industry. And they have been so generous with their time, and I have learned so much from them. I, I just can't, I can't even believe it. Um, one of them is obviously Nunzio mm-hmm. from the class. Uh, another young woman, Christina Strain, who is the, who started off life as a colorist for Marvel for many, many years, mm-hmm. and she still does work for them. Uh, she currently does the Fox Sister webcomic. Uh, she's writing that. Uh, along with many other things. Uh, she'd been in the business for a long time. I just would take her out to lunch and just sit there and take notes. I, th- uh, I
1: think I may have met her, I'm not sure.
2: You you may have, I mean, she's, she's around. Uh, she lives here in LA. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then another very important mentor I've had is Dave Elliott, who is the editor-owner of A1 Atomica Press, who which was very popular in in the 80s i believe and then he just got caught up with he got lots lots of other work being an editor uh for other people and kind of steered away from being a creator but now he's come back to that and was gracious enough to ask uh, emily and myself to be a part of the A1 Atomica Press anthology, which is being released at the end of this month.
1: Oh, great. My.
2: So uh, I wrote a short story called The Way Home, mm-hmm. and Emily did three illustrations for it. And it's the story about what happens between page three and four of issue one of the webcomic. Oh. So it's it's kind of the little fill-in pieces, mm-hmm. because I do certainly hope to write novels-based novels based in this world, at some point, uh, because it's just it's so rich. I've already written uh, three novellas, uh, which are prequels to the webcomics, So there's no spoilers. You can actually get those on uh, you know Kindle, Nook, or any e-reader you have. So these
1: are these are already published. These are already those, up-
2: these are published. Yes. Tell us, these tell are- us the names. <laughs> you have to plug your books. I will do that. I <laughs> will do that. Uh, the first one is called The Devil Within, uh-huh. and it's a short story about. Andrew O'Sullivan, Caitlin's father, in his early days before he met Samuel and started working for him. And the second one is called The Secret, and it is the story about how Samuel and his wife Elizabeth Weldsmore met and fell in love. And the third one, you're going to love this, is called Steampunk Rat. (laughs) Ha ha! Sort of like the stainless steel like rat, stainless, only not yeah,
1: I, Exactly, I was thinking stainless steel rat Except with steam Except
0: it's more like brass and brass leather Brass rat, stainless
1: <laughs>
2: Yes, steel it he is, rat Yes, it is a steampunk rat Absolutely And that story came about I was looking to do a third story And so I had a couple fans out there One was Dave Elliott Another was Richard Caldwell Who is a blogger And I said, hey guys, who would you like me to write about? And so Richard said, why don't you do Jonathan Weldsmore in Happier Days? And Jonathan Weldsmore is uh, Samuel's ex-father-in-law, uh, his, obviously his wife's father, who you see just briefly in the first, the first issue. Not a happy man. Not a happy man. So I said, okay, I'll go back to a time when he was almost happy. Or closer to it. And so it was a YA uh, novella of a 15 year old Jonathan Wellsmore and how he dealt with his very upper crust family and um, ultimately saved a day, saved the day because of his smarts and engineering prowess. <laughs> mm. So that one actually was nominated for a steampunk. Chronicles Reader's Choice Award. Oh, very good. So, I was very pleased about that. So, um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a, a Goodreads author and there's reviews and all that other fun stuff, but I really enjoy just kind of, you know, making this, going deeper and deeper into this world and, uh, uh, you know, being in the middle of this Kickstarter right now, I can't do any writing, which is very, very frustrating.
1: <laughs> and the Kickstarter is, the goal of the Kickstarter is, and we will, I, I want to return to the, your world development in a moment. Okay. The, the, the goal of the Kickstarter is to do what?
2: Uh, two things. One, to complete the last three issues of the six-issue miniseries and to print a softbound book of all six issues.
1: Great. Ah good
2: so well from what um, you've
1: seen so far it's it's extremely well put together it's extremely popular you have a lot of uh you have a lot of very talented people attached to the project and um the writing is certainly solid
2: thank uh, you the
1: and um susan how how popular is this particular kickstarter how's it doing you
0: mm and I was looking it had 22 days left and uh, probably I I'd have to look I'm sorry
2: yeah it's it's doing okay but it needs to do better. Yeah we, we definitely need uh, more people on board here because we are asking for uh, 25,000 mm-hmm. and and I know uh-huh. that's kind of a scary amount.
0: Well, I mean, we, it sounds like a lot, but when you start
1: pricing things out, uh, not yeah, so much. It's yeah, people. I think yeah. I think there's a little bit of a um, uh, a little bit of a misconception on the crowdfunding sites. Uh, people don't realize that uh, that getting actual work done actually costs money, uh, and they don't realize how much money it actually costs. Uh, When people started doing Kickstarter campaigns, you would see campaigns under $10,000. And that was the norm. And now the campaigns are around $25,000, typically. Uh, And, you know, I I think it comes with going out to dinner and discovering that for two people, you've just paid $50 for your dinner.
2: Yeah. It's um, it's
1: not... Things... Inflation has taken its toll, and, and uh, uh, I think the perception that people have of Kickstarter campaigns has not kept pace with that.
2: Yes, I think a lot of people don't realize that I'm not doing the illustration as well.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And a lot of the Kickstarters, you have writer-artists, mm-hmm. so they don't have to pay an artist because they are the artist. Yes. I, I am paying Emily. Mm -hmm. I have two colorists, a team that I pay. I also pay my letterer. Mm -hmm. So right now everyone's getting paid but me. (laughs) Yeah,
1: oh, I know that one.
2: (laughs) And that includes, and of course, my production guy who puts everything together to get it ready for print Mm -hmm. and for PDF. Because I don't know Photoshop. You know, I can't can't afford to buy Photoshop. Uh So I need to hire a professional who knows how to do that. Uh, I've pr- uh, priced out printers and you know everything, and I actually do have a rocket scientist husband, <laughs> uh-huh. so which we, helps, which really helps because we sat down and we crunched those numbers hard, and that's what we that's what we came up with. A lot
1: of it has to do with, I mean, if your husband is an engineer. You know, those skills translate directly to production management for something like a comic book. It's surprising, but numbers are numbers.
2: Oh no, you're abs- you're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he put- he'll,
1: he'll think of things that you hadn't thought of, and oh, and help, you, and help right. you put things on the put things in the spreadsheet that keep you from from running your project off a cliff. Uh, I, I uh, uh, I'm often dismayed by uh, by people who say, "Oh, we can do our graphic novel for." $4,000, <laughs> you know? And what are they going to do? Right in in crayon? crayon. Yeah, in crayon.
2: <laughs> well, they probably could do it if it was only 32 pages long. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, mine That's was, not a graphic mine,
1: novel. That's a comic book. I'm that's
2: sorry. a comic book. Uh, mine is going to be 136 pages.
1: That is well, silent. you're
2: sure getting your money's worth. Yeah, that's... So and we it's act- interesting
1: that, that that is pretty near the... Uh, Pretty near the uh, uh, the length of a motion picture script as well. It's, yes, you know, yeah. It's one hundred and 100, <laughs> fifteen to one hundred and thirty pages on the outside. Correct. So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm kind of stoked. You know, I want to see I want to see this happen. But getting back to uh, and I promised we, that we would return to uh, the story development question. Yes. Uh, you have uh, you've fallen into a bit of a trap, haven't you? You've created such a robust backstory that your universe has taken on a life of its own.
2: Yes, it has. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and and now it's got you by the nape of the neck, and uh, it wants to lead you around.
2: But that's the fun part of it.
1: <laughs> yeah. So you've no. got you've got three novellas, and uh, do you have plans once the Kickstarter's done, and should it succeed? Uh. And then what happens? And, and how will you dovetail this into uh, writing other works in the same universe?
2: Well, other than sleeping for about a week after the Kickstarter ends, <laughs> um, uh, I already have <clears throat> issue four already written
0: mm-hmm.
2: and ready to go. So hopefully if we make our goal after Amazon you know, clears the money... I can hand over the issue to Emmy to get her start working and I have the whole thing is mapped out and arced out, outlined and so I'll just, I'll crank out issue five and six and just get her motoring on it immediately
0: mm-hmm.
2: so we can, <clears throat> we can make our, all of our dates our publication dates and reward dates for everybody uh, then I might take a little break from comics a little bit <laughs> and just go back to working on prose and other projects I have. I I just finished a middle grade fantasy novel, which I got notes back from my beta readers that I want to rewrite. I need to to go back to that Mm -hmm. and finish that up. And there's about two more, two or three more novellas in the Boston metaphysical world that I want to write And then I have a small press publisher who is interested in putting together an anthology of all the short stories and novellas. Oh, great. And so I like to get that going. And depending on how successful the the Kickstarter is, what I might do in the future is... And I definitely want to do more uh, Boston Metaphysical comic story arcs is... Probably shorten it down to four issues instead of six, just to make it more financially viable and feasible to do, and maybe just do a Kickstarter for each issue, and do it one at a time. Uh, because my husband and I, we, we've been self-funding this, and we just can't do that anymore. So
1: yeah, yeah, I can, I can relate. I mean, Krypton, Krypton Radio is sort of in the same boat, you know. We're we're except that we're using Indiegogo. Yeah, except that we're using Indiegogo, so
2: and I'm a backer. Oh, yes, Yay! Thank, thank, you. thank you very
1: much. I saw your contribution come in just the other day.
2: Good. And uh,
1: uh, yeah, we're we're uh, we're trying to get our next production year paid for, and uh, and we have ideas on where where we want to go and, and concepts as to where we want to go next. But uh, this show really isn't about us; it's about you. Uh, why? I, I, I've got a question for you uh, from a writer's perspective. Why novellas, why not novels?
2: Uh, you can get them out faster for one.
1: Uh, that's a good one. Well, you, you tell hurt.
2: the story as long you know you tell
0: the story as long as it is and then end it. you know
1: Does it, does yes. it have to do with with a uh, uh, performance curve you know in terms of marketing?
2: There is there is that keeping something fresh in front of my audience. On a regular basis is very important. And also it gives me a chance to just focus on one or two characters. And tell a story just about them. Mm -hmm. And an incident or a problem that they have to deal with. uh, And and instead of going through the whole... Of course there's a three-act structure still in the novella. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: But you look at it almost like as a, a slice of life. So a
1: novella will have maybe a subplot, or, yeah. yeah, and that's it.
2: Yeah, it'll have maybe maybe one subplot, and that's it. Uh, a steampunk Rat actually goes back and forth between two points of view between the rat and fifteen year old Jonathan, mm-hmm. and that's how I structured it because I thought that would be fun to get the varying points of view between between each of them, you know, dealing with the problem from their own perspective.
1: I think it's fascinating that that electronic publishing has allowed for the revival of the novella. I mean, before uh, before electronic publishing, novellas were very very hard to sell.
2: Uh, absolutely, and uh, before I launched the web comic, I realized there were hundreds of thousands of web comics out there, and one sure thing are. I oh just I mean there were so many of them, and obviously I hope mine would be good enough that would draw people in, but I also knew I had to offer something different than all the other webcomics. And I was reading another author's blog, and she made the comment that because of the new mobile handheld devices, that she thought that short stories would see a resurgence because people would want something fun to read between flying between Burbank and Oakland.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. That, I absolutely. That agree. wouldn't
2: take up their whole day. That literally, they could read in an hour, and then they would go on their day. And I thought, you know, I think she's right. So, and I also knew I could write short stories and novellas. I had the writing background, and a, a lot of webcomic comic people, uh, the the writers, they really did. They. They're comic writers. They they don't do anything else. Not that they can't, but they just mm-hmm. they don't. And I knew that was one way that I could differentiate myself from other web comics. And so that's how, that's how I launched it, just to make it a little different and to give the readership more about the world. And what's been interesting is it is the crossovers I've had because I've had people who started with the novellas and didn't know anything about the webcomic and then like the novellas and then started reading the webcomic and vice versa. So it's, it's been a nice crossover and they've enjoyed being able to, you know, get the visuals, the, the lovely art that Emily has done, but yet with the novellas, be able to dig deeper into the world and into the characters.
1: It's, um, it's often a delight when you, uh, when you watch the transition, you know when you watch the discovery of someone uh, going, I had no idea this cool thing existed. You know, yeah, it's and, a lot and, of fun. and then they write asking you for more, and that's that's the best part.
2: Yeah, what's what's scary scary now and like but good is that I have some fans who've asked, well, okay, when is the RPG coming out?
1: <laughs> what RPG? Yeah, because and they, because like, they assume there's going to be one.
2: Yes, and yes, someday I hope there will be one when I have time to deal with it. <laughs> but, I mean, it's nice that people want to see this in other forms.
1: Well, it's, it's, uh, I think you've touched on something very interesting, which is that the audience is now so used to creative ventures like this going transmedia that they fully expect it.
0: Transmedia is the magic word. Transmedia is yeah. the magic
1: word. It's like, you know, chocolate milk <laughs> from forty years ago. That's it's it's the new fusion. Uh, uh, the transmedia uh, is happening all around us now, and uh, that's certainly what you know. That's the cornerstone of what we're working on at Krypton Radio nowadays, and uh, obviously. Going, you're you are already transmedia to start with.
2: Yes. Uh, so yes.
1: Uh, did you did you give that conscious thought as you were doing this, or or was this just something that was a
2: natural outgrowth? It was a conscious thought. Um, it, as my husband will tell you, I am a planner. Mm-hmm. As many other people do, I will tell you, I'm also a, a marketing animal, <laughs> which is why a lot of people know about the web comic is. Just being fearless and getting it out there—it's uh, hard, but you have to get above the noise.
1: And that's that's extremely difficult. And I have been watching what you have do, been doing with the various uh, with the various fan sites, and you have been you've gotten write ups on some of our peer sites, and and this sort of thing, and and and, and podcasts. Uh, yes, this this might be the first radio show you've been on. Yeah, but this yes, will be a podcast. Yeah, but, yeah, week. And, but this will be a podcast in a month, <laughs> uh, as well. So uh, yes,
2: this is the first radio show. I've I've done a couple of podcasts.
1: Mm-hmm. But you've been you've been extremely you've you've been extremely facile about getting that stuff done, and I have great admiration for that because uh, we've been trying to do the same thing with not anywhere near so much success. So
2: you. You do, have to be, you do have to be fearless and uh, assertive without being annoying, and, and I, mm-hmm. I hope I'm not annoying. <laughs> not, <laughs> yet. Not, not, not yet. Not yet. Uh, but I do try to balance that with
1: if you, being, if you double dip in our guacamole, then we'll talk.
2: Yeah, well, <laughs> well, with also being generous to the people who've been generous to me. Uh-huh. And, and that means posting about other Kickstarters on my Facebook page, Posting about other people's successes, uh, retweeting mm-hmm. other people, uh, not only their Kickstarters, but getting their comic out there, backing other comics. Uh, I, am, I tell people, hey, if you want me to retweet something or post something, just send it on over. I'll, I'll post it on my Facebook page. I'll, I'll publicize it for you. I have no problem with that. And yeah, because to me, it helps everybody.
0: Well, it doesn't take away from you, you know. And and
1: it doesn't take away from it's it's uh, it's something that we work on here too. We all rise together. It's a big part of the mission statement of the radio station is to help other artists rise, Uh, because as they rise, so we rise as well.
2: Yeah, and I I also I I I learn. Yeah, and I learn so much from these other folks. I when I go to conventions. Mm-hmm. I've only been going to convention now for about a year and I tell you I look at everybody else's table I see how they set it up I see how I can do mine better I learn from mm-hmm. everyone around me and and if they want to learn from me great if they think they can learn anything from me great that's wonderful <laughs> but I <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I constantly am I'm looking around of like how can I do it better and because there's people around me who, who do it better
1: And that's, I think that's a very valuable thing. For for the listeners, What one of the, uh, and and this is, I'm breaking the fourth wall here and talking directly to the audience, which I rarely do. Okay. Um, If you have something that you're passionate about, don't be afraid to be passionate about it. It's okay to be obsessed with it, because that obsession is what's going to drive your project forward. And frankly, in in the modern environment, little else will work.
2: Oh, that's definitely true. My my husband, you know, constantly refers to me as his OCD wife. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it's it's what you have to do. And I think a lot. One of the main reasons people don't do it is their fear of rejection. And their fear of failure.
1: Oh, I think that's half of it.
2: And I and I know it's scary. Uh, I just listened this afternoon to a podcast that Panda Manga just did a whole hour on me, which was like amazing to listen wow. to someone else's. I, I mean, they somebody
1: went, else's take on your work for a whole hour.
2: Yeah, I mean, they went through the uh, the the story, the art, the website. I mean, just everything down the oh, that's, nitty-gritty that's magnificent and i just sat there and i was listening while i of course sending out posts and emails <laughs> uh multitasking as usual mm-hmm. but it was fascinating and and i got some really excellent constructive criticism i mean uh, overall they really they really like the comic which is great but i really enjoyed hearing uh the constructive criticism they had i was like oh wow okay you know i think i can probably make that better and i mean this is the first comic i've ever done uh so i have no doubt that it could always be done better and that the next one will be better because everything i've learned in the meantime
1: that's uh yeah i'm sorry i'm gonna have to edit this part out like i'm drawing i'm drawing a blank
0: it's admirable (laughs) it's quite admirable
1: yeah, it's it's uh, okay. Let me start again. Uh, it's that kind of dedication that really that really pushes it forward, as I was just saying. And it's it's if you don't have that kind of acceptance of what other people uh, uh, are saying about your work, uh, you know, it's it's you're, when you're doing creative work, you are working in a village. Uh, you are resonating fr- uh, against what your audience thinks and feels about your own work. Because if you're not, it's not art. It, it is not. It is not art. And uh, this, is, this, again, is one of the other things that beginning artists and writers often overlook. It's not a, uh, when you're out there creating, it's not a talk to the hand situation. It's a jump in the pool situation.
2: Yeah, you can't create in a vacuum. Absolutely that, not. That's just not possible. I have a writer's group. Uh, all of this stuff gets vetted. I Things get rewritten all the time. I mean, a writer's life is rewriting. That, that's simply a, a fact. And every once in a while, whether it be a script or short story, it doesn't matter what it is. And sometimes I'll get a note that <laughs> will go, I'll go like, oh, crap, this is a page one rewrite. But you know something? they're right and it will make it better. Yeah. And as long as it makes it better, I don't mind doing the page 1 rewrite. That's just but that's something you have to accept. Even well, if you've got to blow up everything mm. that you just written and start over because it, and sometimes it can be just one note and you go like, "Oh." Yeah. <laughs> Oh, it's like, right. Do you
1: remember? Do you remember? Uh, right. Are you old enough to remember the uh, the uh, the supersonic aircraft that uh, the Russian supersonic aircraft that blew up over the Paris Air Show in 1977?
2: I I have a vague recollection of that.
1: Yeah, they they took it supersonic and it exploded, <clears throat> and, and uh, the engineers who built it knew that it would never it would never pass Mach one. Because the the tolerances in the construction were uh, were so poorly managed that there were gaps in the hull plating, parts didn't fit, things wobbled, and uh, uh, the pilots, when they got in it, they knew they were going to die, and they had put their affairs in order before they got in the plane.
2: That's so sad. It is,
1: and the whole thing stems from. Um, At the time, uh, the the Russian, um, and this is the the, before the dissolution of the USSR, uh, the uh, the the belief was that you didn't dare admit you were wrong, even when it was obvious.
2: Yeah. Because you could
1: not admit failure to your superiors. Yeah. And and the the difference there is, uh, um, uh, Susan, what was the Who's the author oh. of Falling
2: Free?
0: Oh, um, Lois mcmaster Bujold. mcmaster
2: Thank you. Yes, I'm a huge fan of hers. Yeah, me and, too. And She's my idol. <laughs> in, and in that book,
1: uh, there is an engineer who goes in great detail uh, on the topic of, you know, you might be able to lie to yourself, you may be able to lie on the report, but you can't fool the metal. In the end, it all comes down to the metal and if you build something elaborate on top of something that's flawed to start with it's just going to blow up <laughs> yeah. it doesn't matter it doesn't matter how good the trimming is if the foundation is rotten it's going to it's going to fall down
2: yeah yeah it's going to fall down
1: so you don't need to be afraid of ripping it apart and doing it over if that's what it takes to fix it
2: Unfortunately, yes. in
0: writing, there's somewhat less dire consequences. Yeah, less, no one's yes. going to die if
2: yes. you screw at up the story. With, but, with, with writing, at least, it, it's just my time. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you know,
2: yeah there's, there's no life or death consequences involved.
1: <laughs> so um, you see yourself moving into writing more novellas in the future. Uh,
2: yes. Novellas, possibly a novel, mm-hmm. and how about screenplays? Uh, well, I do come from a screenplay. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, and that's, background. And
1: that's that's a good point. That's where you came yes. from to start with. That's what spawned all this.
2: That's and what you, spawned you, all this. Do you? Obviously, have... I would love this to circle back mm-hmm. to film and TV. And in fact, I I think maybe it, due to the uh, the economics of our time, mm-hmm. the Next step for Boston Metaphysical beyond a comic and the novels would possibly be a web series. Mm-hmm. That's logical.
1: Yeah, that's logical.
2: And then from a web series to something else, and well, just like a, build, a digital, build
1: a digital distribution medium like Netflix or something.
2: That's that because, would be wonderful because television is. It's fragmenting.
0: I'm not going to say it's fragment. dying, but it yeah, is it's certainly not, it's not dying. evolving. It's certainly.
1: It's it is. starting to slide off into the ocean a little bit. You know, yeah,
2: it's, it's the whole marketplace is evolving, and we really don't know how it's all going to settle out, and in mm-hmm. fact, if it's actually going to settle out. Uh, it may continue evolving for quite a long time as the distribution system keeps changing mm-hmm. and the delivery system of the content keeps changing between small handheld devices to larger ones. Uh, it was interesting, the other evening, my husband and I had gone out to dinner in uh, Pasadena, and we're walking down Old Town, and I looked down and there was a, a young couple sitting on the curb with a laptop, watching John Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> so the dynamics of how we receive our entertainment Mm-hmm. Has so completely changed from, you know, my father's time and, and even my brother's time was he's he's a lot older than I am. T V is no longer the primary delivery system of shows anymore that people watch. They you're using their computers or laptops or uh small mobile devices, whatever they have. So I it it's all changing and we have to change with it.
1: And, uh, and that's not the end of it either, because no. uh, um, we've sort of fallen in love with, uh, with the idea of the holodeck. You know, oh I, yeah. I, I, I've got this I have this, this pet topic that I trot out every now and then, and it's how Star Trek has influenced uh, nearly every aspect of modern technology and uh, especially within the last 15 years or so.
2: I completely agree
1: with you. <laughs> and, and one of the things that uh, has just struck the imagination of the, uh, of the public has been the holodeck. And now we have the, the Oculus Rift, the uh, consumer-grade uh, head-mounted display. Uh, yeah. And there's, there's another one that's even more compact that uses laser light to, uh, to beam the content directly into the eyeballs and it creates the impression that you're looking at an eight foot screen eight feet away. So you can focus uh, in the distance. You don't get the headaches from it, and uh, it doesn't. It you cannot see the pixels.
2: Yeah, I mean at, at some point we'll either have contact lenses that do the same, or contact lenses that are implanted that do the same.
1: Uh, or, yeah, something like that eventually I think yeah. might be possible, but in the short term. Uh, we'll have something like bulky sunglasses that you put on uh, that will give you a three dimensional, you know, give you this three dimensional widescreen personal experience.
0: Well, the problem with the implants is that you know every time there's an upgrade, you're you're in for another round of surgery.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't see because of the rapid pace of of uh, rapid pace of technological development. I don't see implants working very well. But I do see um, personal appliances uh, yeah, working, work, moving in that direction very quickly. And I think the next logical step after television is you are there, three dimensional productions, uh, where you can walk around among the action or within the action, like you, as though you were on a holodeck. And now we have a brand new medium. You know, we, we go from machinima. To being able to stand there and witness the scene as though we were part of it. So part of the,
0: like, so
1: what's part so, of that so where's and your the, venue? So, you
0: can't do it in your living room. You knock your lamps over.
2: Yeah. What's interesting is is as a writer, you're also going to have to structure those stories differently.
1: Yes. It's going uh, to. It's you're going, going to have completely different. Way the of directing
0: scripting. is going to be a nightmare. Yeah.
2: Uh, but but yeah, the writing is going to be different. Um, it's it's the difference between if you're right now writing for if you're writing a 3D movie that's supposed to be 3D as opposed to a movie that they just turned into 3D, 3D but wasn't written to be 3D like captain there's america. there's a there's a major difference between Please. the two
1: yeah captain america no it, it's not a 3D movie it's a 3D <laughs> conversion yes you
2: know uh, unlike avatar which was designed to be a 3D movie mhm and it was written to be
0: a 3D movie. Boy, was that different. Yeah.
2: Yeah. No, and, it was and, it was very the way, different.
1: The way they directed it, uh, they created a three-dimensional environment that lived in the computer, and they flew a virtual camera. They walked around the scene with a virtual camera, and if they looked through the viewfinder, they could see whatever the camera was pointing at in that virtual world. And they, it correlated directly with the physical space they were moving in. Yes. And... And... Uh, there are so many, uh, I mean, just, just because television is changing and, and, you know, the next step is web series and beyond that, uh, I think life is going to get very, very interesting, especially for people who work in short uh, short content like novellas and, uh, and half hour TV, you know, the, the same sort of stories that you would format for a 22 minute show. Will work very, very well for the um, the the sensorily complex uh, personal intense personal experience of being fully immersed in an environment.
2: Yeah, it it it's interesting. I got this this visual of the huge clunky eyeglasses you're talking about to immerse yourself. It is as technology evolves, that's that's yeah, the that's thing going to shrink. Well, it's going to shrink, but we're going to laugh at it like we did at the original satellite phones that were so huge.
1: The very first uh, head-mounted display was not a head-mounted display; it weighed about sixty pounds and it hung from the ceiling. Wow! And you didn't put it on; you got up and stood up. Stood up in it, uh, okay. and that was. Um, uh, it was. I think that was first developed. in at Livermore Labs in California Uh, I can't remember which laboratory it was at Livermore Uh, but uh, the results were very 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 low resolution but it was the first virtual reality headset
2: Well you have to start somewhere You do have to start somewhere and then in
1: 1993 uh, when I was in London on vacation they had a virtual reality game uh, uh at Piccadilly Circus there was an arcade and they had two of these cyberpods and my traveling companion and I
0: uh had to go
1: try them had that, to huh? go try them and it was a, it was a uh a two-person first, uh two person first first person shooter and it pitted you against one another and okay. uh, and I had no trouble oriented my orienting myself to the world and he didn't understand that there was a correlation between how he was holding his head and where his camera was looking and he kept looking straight down <laughs> trying to figure out why his viewpoint was broken because it yeah. didn't occur to him to raise his head Okay, that's so, odd so there, Yeah, so there's there's a, I, I think that is probably the new wave of technology and the new wave of entertainment that's coming is through these head-mounted displays and it's going to transform everything we do and everything about the way we do it.
2: Yeah, and it will be, like I said, it will be interesting to see how we have to structure our stories to make that work.
1: Yes, very much so. So uh, I think that the complexity will be such that people who are used to working in comic books and working in shorter forms, like novellas such as yourself, will have a distinct advantage a distinct advantage selling content for this new medium. So I'm looking forward very much to seeing, first of all, the rest of the Boston Metaphysical Society books. And we wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Uh, But I look forward to seeing what you personally do uh, in the future as you start moving forward uh, from here.
2: Yes, you you and me both. (laughs) No, it's just—it's a lot of work. It's a lot of planning. Uh, but first things first, I have to get through this kick. Get, I have to get through this Kickstarter. Right, right. Which is an eight-hour day job. Depend doesn't matter when I start, but it's my eight hours. Oh, yeah, uh, I, I
1: wish I had that kind of time to spend on ours. Cause, but I have to run the station too.
2: Of course, uh, so. uh, I. <laughs> I do. I I, I do work part time. I work oh. part time for uh, LA Fitness as a spin instructor. Oh, uh huh. So, yes, there's some days when I start I have to go to work and I start my other job here at home whenever I get home and and then i then I get my eight hours in for the for the Kickstarter. It's well, just... at least
0: you already had your workout,
1: yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah that actually does help when you have to sit in this chair in front of a computer for hours on end,
1: yeah, mm-hmm. oh yeah yeah, it's 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 mentally exhausting to sit in one place for eight hours. It just it just is. I am I have great admiration for what you're doing. And, Thank you. Uh, and uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed what I've seen of Boston metaphysical so so far, and we look forward to seeing the completion of this project. Um, so do I. <laughs> Madeline Holly-Rosing, thank you very much for joining us on The Event Horizon this evening.
2: Thank you very much for having me
1: And uh, it's been a pleasure Thanks This has been episode 36 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for November 2nd, 2013 Your hosts have been Krypton Radio station manager Jean Turnbow and executive producer Susan Fox Our guest this week has been Madeline Holly-Rosing writer and creator of the steampunk graphic novel boston metaphysical society to find out more about it visit the website at boston this episode will air again on sunday november 3rd at 4 p.m pacific 7 p.m eastern time you will be able to find this episode and others as downloads at the krypton radio website and on itunes as podcasts the event horizon title sequence is written and produced by gene Turnbow. The part of the science officer was played by renowned science fiction illustrator Mark Schirmeister. The part of the engineer was played by fandom dignitary, Christian B. McGuire. The Navigator was played by Corsair's Closet producer, Christine Cherry, and the role of the captain was voiced by science fiction writer, Larry Nevin. This program and its contents are copyright 2013 by Krypton Media Group, Incorporated. Stay tuned for more great music and tonight's episode of X-1. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi.